months to study through the topic of the afterlife. And even in naming it the afterlife, again, we're being reminded that, that even the name is sort of misrepresentative because it implies that after this life, life is over. After life, well, we're finding just the opposite to be the case, aren't we? We're finding that the end of this existence is really the beginning of what life is all about. So we're working our way. We're taking a couple of months to work progressively through each stage of the after existence, the after life, so to speak. And we're finding with each stage that we uncovered that there is so much more going on than perhaps we had anticipated was going on. We're finding that stage after stage of, of what comes after this existence carries with it two truths. First of all, for the believer in Jesus Christ, each stage after this life is something to be greatly, greatly anticipated before the one who outside of Christ, we're finding that it is greatly to be dreaded. And today, we'll turn to a passage or to a topic of the afterlife that uh, I think will il illustrate this for us very, uh, very powerfully. But we're finding a lot of things to consider as we work through the events in the next existence. We began with physical death, and we saw that physical death, again, for the believer in Jesus Christ, is not something to be dreaded. In fact, it is something to be anticipated because it brings for the believer in Christ at least three things. First of all, we're reminded that it's not punishment for our sin. The punishment for our sin has been completely absorbed by Christ. There is no punishment for our sin remaining. And so, death, physical death is not punishment for our sin, but instead it is a, first of all, important part of our sanctification process. It is the greatest opportunity that the believer in Christ will have to exercise faith. Faith is facing the unknown while believing in what God has said to be true, and there is no greater unknown that we will face than the unknown of physical death. So physical death is an important part of our sanctification process and becoming like Christ. Secondly, we also saw that physical death is a tremendous blessing for the believer in Jesus Christ. Physical death allows the believer's body to go into a state of rest in which God will raise it once again in an incorruptible, imperishable state. In other words, the taint of sin is so deep and it's so dark that God says to us, physical death is what is needed in order to raise you to newness of life, to true newness of life. So physical death allows the believer to enter into eternity with zero taint from sin or zero consequence from sin. So we saw that about physical death. Then we looked at the intermediate state. The intermediate state is the period of of time between the point of physical death and the resurrection, which we looked at the following week. But the intermediate state, what we looked at that and we saw the souls of believers that are in the presence of God. They don't have physical bodies, but they are engaged in a very physical way, both with God and with their surroundings. We saw believers doing incredible things in Revelation 7 and other places. And so we saw that the intermediate state, likewise, is a period of time for us to look forward to with great anticipation. And then lastly, last week we turned to the resurrection. And we looked at the resurrection event in which our bodies will be raised in an incorruptible, imperishable, powerful, spiritual existence and that we'll be reunited back with our souls and that will be the first moment in which we will ever exist as we were intended to exist. In a spirit-body combination, with the body being completely free from the taint of sin. That's the first time we'll ever exist as God has intended for us to, to exist. So that sort of sets the stage of the three messages that we had before this one. Today, we will turn again to the subject of the judgment. The judgment, the final judgment, is what will follow, of course, the resurrection. Now, as we begin looking at the judgment this morning, one of the things I want to make note of is that if you are following along where we're going with this, then you probably have, have noticed that there are, uh, there's a definite progression to how we're going through this. Physical death, then comes the intermediate state, then the resurrection, then the judgment, and then we'll look at hell and we'll look at heaven after this. However, as we talk about that progression, you may, if you're paying close attention, you may think, well, wait a minute, we've left something out. And we have intentionally left something out, something called the Millennial Kingdom or the Millennial Age. The Millennial Kingdom is something that some Christians believe in. Scripture seems to indicate that there's this, especially from Revelation 20, 
Scripture seems to indicate that there's this millennial kingdom period of a thousand years, it's called in Revelation 20, in which Christ is ruling. And that comes prior to the final resurrection. Um, that comes prior to the initiation of hell and heaven, which we'll be talking about. And so um, you're, you're going to notice that, well, we kind of skipped that step. And I've done it on purpose for, uh, for a couple of reasons. Mainly because the topic of the millennial kingdom is of all the things that we're going to look at in the next existence, the millennial kingdom is the one thing that Scripture has the least to say about. Scripture says virtually nothing about this kingdom and what it will be about and what things will be like in the kingdom. And so, for that reason, we're just going to move on to more fruitful ground and we're going to move to the, to the final judgment. So, um, feel free to search your Scriptures and study about this millennial period and come to your conclusions about that, but we, will, we won't spend a message looking at the millennial kingdom. Secondly, we're going to talk this morning about the final judgment. And... I want to point out before we begin that there are differing beliefs within the Christian community about the final judgment. In particular, how many of them there are. Some Christians believe that there are three separate judgments uh, in which people will stand before God as judge. I happen to believe that there is one judgment event. But for the purposes of the message this morning, I'm going to assume that there's just one judgment event. Feel free to believe that there are three separate ones. Many people do. That really won't change much of what I have to say this morning, but just I want to put that out there in case you were thinking, well, I thought that there was more than one judgment. There may be. I don't think we can say for sure, but in my estimation, Scripture seems to speak to me of one judgment event, one final judgment event, and I'm just going to make that assumption this morning and go forward with that. So with that being said, we turn this morning to the subject of the final judgment. And if I were really a sensitive person, I could probably pick up on just sort of a collective tensing up, even as I mentioned that word, judgment. That probably all of us in the room just sort of think, oh, well, we're to the next message. Because the topic of judgment is not one that we're particularly favorable to. It's not one that just brings us good feelings. It reminds us of an exam, taking a test, being assessed. And that's never comfortable particularly when we add the descriptor final to it. Final judgment. This is the final exam, so to speak. I think it's safe to say that probably none of us in the room are looking forward to this event with anticipation. However, I hope in three minutes or so, I hope to show you from the Scriptures that just like every other event that we have looked at in the life to come, for the believer in Jesus Christ, the final will be a day of tremendous celebration, tremendous favor in Jesus Christ. It will be the worst day of your existence. So we look this morning to the final judgment. And you want to, if you've never done this before, you definitely want to do this now. You want to get your sermon notes handy. Because we're going to really rely on those heavily this morning. As you pull those out, you're going to notice that they have taken on a whole different form this morning. There are multiple pages of notes, it seems like, for us this morning. And that automatically strikes fear in everyone's heart because you know how long I preach over just a half of a one page of notes. And now we've got four of them. So uh, let, let not your heart be troubled, as Jesus would say. This is, this is just a very, very Scripture-intensive message. In other words, um, probably... Half the words I say this morning will be the words of Scripture. And the reason for that is because of all the subjects of the afterlife, this is the subject that the Scriptures has the most to say about. Literally, what the Scriptures have to say about final judgment is so voluminous that it is overwhelming. That was the, that was the greatest difficulty in preparing this message was literally weeding it down the four pages of Scripture notes. Because literally, open your Bible to any page, and I promise you, you won't be far from a mention of the final judgment. It is all over the place. Every prophet talks about it. Every prophet that wrote, Elisha and Elijah were prophets that didn't write, but every prophet that wrote, wrote about the judgment. The Old Testament is absolutely full of the idea 
of God as judge. He would talk to, he would talk to us about it as, as the day of the Lord, the fearful day of the Lord, the frightening day of Yahweh, the day of reckoning. There's so many different terms that revolve around it because the Old Testament was replete with the idea of judgment. Then we turn to the New Testament and we find the same thing. We find Scriptures all over the place talking to us about the final judgment. And so, largely for that reason, in order for us to look at the subject this morning, we, by necessity, are going to be looking at a lot of Scripture. So this doesn't mean that we're going to be here a long time. It just means that we've got a lot of Scripture to work through, and we'll do so expediently this morning. But as we begin to talk about the subject of the final judgment, I want to begin from one of the passages that speaks to it at length. Now, the judgment is mentioned all over the place in Scripture. Most of the time when it's mentioned, it's only mentioned just to call attention to the event, not to describe it at all. It'll, the prophets will talk about the day of judgment or the day of reckoning, and it'll just sort of, sort of call our attention to the fact that there is a judgment, but it won't really describe that judgment in any detail. Revelation chapter 20, the Scripture that we'll begin with, is one of the passages that speaks in detail about what the final judgment will be like and what will take place. So let's just begin by reading that passage together from Revelation chapter 20. John says this, Then I saw a great white throne, and Him who was seated on it. From His presence earth and sky fled away, and no place was found for them. And I saw the dead, great and small, before the throne, and books were opened. Then another book was opened, which is the book of life, and the dead were judged by what was written in the books according to what they had done. And the sea gave up the dead who were in it. Death and Hades gave up the dead who were in them. And they were judged, each one of them, according to what they had done. Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death, the lake of fire. And if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. So that is one of the most extensive passages that speaks about this day of judgment. And we can see clearly here the picture that John is painting. There's a throne of judgment and some throne and His presence is so fearful that the earth and the sky and then the dead are raised and then there's this opening of books. The books that are opened apparently contain information that relates events of the people's lives. And as those books are read, judgment is assessed. And we see death and Hades giving up the dead that are in them. The sea giving up the dead that it's in, it's in that. We shouldn't think of that as the literal sea. In the book of John, the sea doesn't mean water. The sea means the realm of darkness. And so the, dead gave, the sea gave up the dead in it. And there was this judgment. And those whose names were not found specific book, were then cast away into the lake of fire. That is the initiation of hell. No one today is in hell because hell hasn't begun. When hell does begin, it will be at the end of this day of judgment in which those who are judged by the deeds of their life are cast into this lake of fire along with Satan and his angels and all of them will be tormented there. So, we haven't gotten to the subject of hell yet, but go ahead and put out of your mind the thought that Satan is in control in hell. And that He's there tormenting the people that are there. He is being tormented just as much as those who are there. So this is the initiation of that period. The initiation of hell. So the first question that we ask ourselves on this day of judgment event is, who is the judge? The Old Testament will say to us repeatedly that God, Yahweh, the Lord, is the judge on the day of judgment. But then when we get to the New Testament, we find consistently that Jesus is said to be the judge on the day of judgment. 2 Timothy 4, verse 1, Jesus Christ, or Christ Jesus, who is to judge the living and the dead, or Acts 10, He commanded us, testify that He is the one appointed by God to judge the living and the dead. Or John 5, the Father has given Jesus Christ authority to execute judgment because He is the Son of Man. So the New Testament changes um, descriptors, so to speak, to say that now Jesus is the judge on this day of judgment, which shouldn't conflict for us because... Recall the fact that in the Old Testament, Jesus had not yet been revealed, at least not by name. So it makes sense that the Old Testament would not speak of Jesus being the judge because He hasn't been revealed as such yet. Then the New Testament tells us specifically that Jesus will be the one who is doing the judging. Which, first of all, gives an assurance here. 
Because Jesus is the one who sits in judgment. We, are there, we will therefore be judged by someone, and this is very important, we will be judged by someone who's one of us. We won't be judged by someone who is not one of us. You, you understand the difference between being judged by somebody who's not like you and somebody who is like you. We will be judged by someone who is fully human, fully one of us, has lived life with temptation, with frustrations, with all the things that come along with life, yet he's done so without sin. So that's important to note, first of all, the judge is Jesus Christ. The next question is, who will be judged? Scripture gives us a picture of the judgment day that is impossible for me to describe in its scope. Because the day of judgment is the greatest event ever to occur in history in terms of size. The size of the event of the day of judgment is literally overwhelming because Scripture tells us of who will be judged. First of all, all humans who have ever lived will be judged on that day. Revelation chapter 20 says that I saw the dead great and small standing before the throne. Great and small, says John. The dead great and small. Um, that's a descriptor of all of the dead. Great and small. Maybe great in life or small in life. Maybe full grown in life or not full grown in life. Uh, great and small. So all humans, every human who has ever lived or ever been born or ever conceived, every human will be raised to judgment. That alone paints an overwhelming picture of the scope of this day. Probably not even able to imagine the mass of humanity that will be present on this day of judgment. Secondly, we are told that the fallen angels will also be judged on this day. From Jude verse 6, the angels who did not stay within their own position of authority, or in other words, the angels who rebelled, he has kept in eternal chains under gloomy darkness until the judgment of the great day. So the fallen angels, those who have rebelled, will be judged on that day, as well as their leader, Satan, from Revelation 20. The devil who had deceived them was thrown into the lake of fire and sulfur where the beast and the false prophet were, and they were to be tormented day and night forever and ever. So the ringleader, the Satan himself, will be also judged on this day. Furthermore, it appears that not only the fallen angels will be judged on this day, but also the unfallen angels, or the righteous angels. From 1 Corinthians 6, verse 3, it seems to imply this. Paul says, do you not know that we are to judge angels? Now, whenever Scripture just says angels without a descriptor, in other words, fallen angels or rebellious angels or unrighteous angels. Whenever Scripture just says angels, it means unfallen angels or angels who are righteous angels. So it appears that not just fallen angels, but also righteous angels will be judged as well. Uh, because again, when Scripture doesn't specifically describe an angel as a fallen angel, it means that it's an unfallen angel. And what's interesting there is that we appear to be the ones who are judging them. So we appear to have a role in this day of judgment as well, a judging sort of role, which actually, Paul, the verse before that, even described it in a larger way from 1 Corinthians 6, verse 2, do you not know that the saints will judge the world? So the scope there seems to be as large as it could possibly be when Paul says, we will be involved in this judgment process, and what's being judged here is literally the world. Or if we look at Hebrews chapter 4, verse 13, we see that uh, the writer there describes it in this way, no creature is hidden from his sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give account. So, no creature, does that mean animals? Probably not. But I think the picture that the writers are trying to describe for us is a picture of absolutely overwhelming scope in the sense that everything, is going to be gathered before the great throne of Jesus Christ and everything from Satan, fallen angels, unfallen angels, to every human will be in, involved in this judgment event. In a couple of weeks, we're going to have Thanksgiving Day. And the day after Thanksgiving is what they call Black Friday. Anybody want to go to Walmart on Black Friday? Not me. Far too many people are there. You have never, however, seen a crowd like you will see on that day. Every human who has ever existed will be there. So put that in your mind, this picture, the grandest picture of the accumulation of humanity that has ever existed. 
So then the judgment will take place. What will the judgment look like? What will the judgment look like for the, uh, the, the fallen angels and Satan? That's pretty easy to, to understand that. In fact, Paul tell, or John tells us about that in Revelation chapter 20. They're cast into the lake of fire. However, we do ask the question, what will the judgment look like for unbelieving humans? Every unbeliever, we're told very specifically, will be judged by the standard of what he has done in his life or her life, by the events of their life, by the actions and the deeds of their life, that will be the measurement by which they are judged. Romans 2 verse 6 says, He will render to each one according to his work. Or Revelation 20 verse 13, They were judged, each one of them, according to what they had done. So each person will be judged by the yardstick of what their life has done. What the deeds in their life, what those deeds have been. That should paint for you an utterly horrifying image. Because... We put that together with the fact that Scripture tells us specifically that it is impossible to please God outside of the one person who pleases Him, which is Jesus Christ. It is impossible to please God outside of Jesus Christ. And so there is nothing that unbelievers can possibly do that pleases God except repent and believe. So the, the unbelieving humans will stand before the judgment throne having lived a full life, and everything in that life will be displeasing to God. So having uh, the deeds of their life exposed, they will then be subjected to punishment in varying degrees. And that's the important thing to see there, is that the punishment for the unbelievers will be according to the, to the works of their life. In other words, everyone in hell will not be receiving the same level of punishment. In other words, those who are in hell will not all receive the same level, the same degree of punishment. The punishment that they receive will be in accordance with the deeds that they have done. Now, the deeds of everybody's life are not the same. Some have sinned to greater excesses than others have sinned. The Scriptures are very careful to tell us that the degree to which we have sinned is also closely connected to the degree of knowledge that we've received from God. Luke 12.48, Everyone to whom much has been given, much of him will be required. The level of understanding that we've been given from God increases the level of responsibility. So not everyone has sinned to the same degree. All sin separates us from God, but not all sin is equally heinous before God. And so, due to the the differing effects of our sin, those who are cast into the lake of fire will receive punishment to different levels. From Matthew 11, verse 22, Jesus says, speaking here of Tyre and Sidon, it will be more bearable on the day of judgment for them. More bearable speaks directly to us of the fact that in hell, the punishment of hell, everything is not the same because something is more bearable than something else. Or from Luke chapter 20, verse 46, Beware the scribes who like to walk around like hypocrites in long robes. They will receive the greater condemnation. I'm sorry, they will receive the greater condemnation. So we see that in hell, there are varying degrees of punishment that are in accordance with the sins of the person's life. God is a God that always punishes sin in accordance with the heinousness of the sin. The the punishment fits the crime and it does so perfectly with God. And so, their deeds are exposed and the Scriptures also tell us that not only are the deeds of their life exposed, but they are fully exposed. Scripture tells us that on the day of judgment, these books will be opened and there has been a record kept of every deed that has been done. From Matthew 12, Matthew says, I tell you, Jesus says, I tell you on the last day of judgment, people will give account for every careless word they speak. So imagine a lifetime. And during that lifetime, how many careless words have been spoken? How many hurtful things could have been spoken in 70, 80, or 90 years? All of those will be exposed and account will be given for all of them. For Ecclesiastes chapter 12, For God will bring every deed into judgment with every secret thing, whether good or evil. Every secret thing will be brought to light and judged on that day. Luke 12, verse 2 and 3, Nothing is covered up that will not be revealed or hidden that will not be known. Therefore, whatever you have said in the dark shall be heard in the light, and what you have whispered in private groups shall be proclaimed on the housetops. So I want to pause right here for just a second, and I want to let that kind of sink in. That every deed done in the life of an unbeliever 
is unpleasing to God. And furthermore, every deed that has been done, thought, felt, all of those will then be brought to light. And all of this will be done before a throne on which Jesus is sitting that John told us that His presence is so fearful and so terrifying that even the sky flees away from Him. The earth and the sky fled away. And every unbeliever will stand before Him having everything exposed. All of it is utterly unpleasing to the God of judgment. Just let that sort of sink in in your thoughts. The terror of that day. I don't know how to put that into words. The, the sheer horror of that day. It, it betrays communication. Or it's beyond words to describe how terrifying and how horrible that day will be for those who are outside of Christ. It should cause each one of us to evaluate ourselves. And if you are outside of Christ, then you should not wait to the end of the service. Because there will be no redeeming quality on that day for those who stand before God outside of Christ. A book will be opened which tells us that nothing has been forgotten. You know, the human mind has an incredible capacity to forget unpleasant things from our past. When we've done things that we're ashamed of, don't really, aren't really proud of this or that, we just have a way of putting that out of our mind. But it has been written down. Nothing has been forgotten. This will be a day of sheer horror for those outside of Christ. Take a look at Jude, verse 14 and 15. Behold, the Lord comes with ten thousands of His holy ones to execute judgment on all, to convict all the ungodly of their deeds of ungodliness that they have committed in such an ungodly way and of all the harsh things that ungodly sinners have spoken against Him. On that day, every unbeliever will stand before the throne and everything that they've said against God, everything that they've thought against Him will be brought to light. You ever said something against somebody? And then they found out about it and you learned that they knew about it when you were standing right in front of them? Can you relate to how awkward that feels? Can you put that into a scope that, that means that the unbeliever who has spoken against the living God now has that brought to light in His presence on that day? This is truly a day of absolute horror. Unbelievers will be judged for what they have done in this life. Now, let's think for just a moment on how believers will be judged on that day. Scripture is clear to tell us that believers will be judged on that day by the same standard. Both believers and unbelievers will be judged according to what they have done. 2 Corinthians 5 verse 10 says, We all must appear before the judgment seat of Christ so that each one may receive what is due. Now the part that's cut off says, what He has done in the body, whether good or evil. So Paul says we all must appear before the judgment seat to answer for what we've done in the body, whether good or evil. We remember that passage from Matthew 25 when Jesus is describing the judgment, how He separates the sheep from the goats. And the way that He separates them is based on what they've done. Those who have given a cup of cold water, those who have given clothes and visited the sick, they're judged one way. Those who haven't are judged another way. So Scripture is very clear for that we will be judged according to what we have done. Now, the question for the believer is, is that a good thing or is that not a good thing? For the believer in Jesus Christ, to be judged by what we have done is a good thing. And here's why. Scripture teaches us that at the cross, a divine exchange takes place. Your sin is exchanged for Jesus' righteousness. And Scripture then tells us that if we are united together by, by faith with, with Christ, 
God looks at us and sees us as having accomplished what His Son accomplished. So in a very real way, when we stand before Jesus, what we will be judged by is what Jesus did. That is the glory of salvation. Because on that day, when, we, when it is determined where, whether we will go with the sheep or whether we go with the goats, the standard of judgment is not what we've done, even though it is a judgment of deeds. It is what Christ has done. That is the wondrous glory of faith in Jesus Christ in union with Him. So we will be judged to determine where we will go and the judgment will be based on what Jesus has done if we are united together with Him. But then in addition to that, remember how we said that hell has, a, has degrees of punishment, different levels of punishment. And those who have sinned more heinously will be punished more harshly. Those who have sinned less heinously will be punished less harshly. We find the same thing applies to the, to the judgment of believers. When believers' lives are assessed, which direction we go is determined by the actions of Jesus Christ. If we are united together with Him by faith, our eternal location is determined by what He has done. However, our eternal rewards are determined by what we have done. Take a look at John chapter 5, verse 24. Truly I say to you, whoever hears My words and believes Him who sent Me has eternal life. He has eternal life now. He does not come into judgment, but has passed from death to life. Now we may read that and say, well, it seems to say that believers won't stand before the judgment. But let's look carefully. The contrast to coming into judgment is described as passing from death to life, or eternal life. So the two options are, either you come under judgment, or you have eternal life. John's not saying that Christians won't stand before the judgment. He's saying we won't be judged as to whether we belong with God or separated from God. We have passed to eternal life. We have already been given eternal life, so we won't stand judgment in that way. Because Scripture is very specific that if we are united together with Christ by faith, our sins have been removed. They are no more. When the book is opened, when the book is opened for you and the, the chapter of your life is turned to, there will be no entries in there of your sin. The only entries in there will be what you have done. There will be no entries of sin in the chapter that describes your life. Scripture is very specific about this. <clears throat> for example, Micah chapter 7, He will tread our iniquities under You'll cast all of our sins into the depths of the sea. Or Psalm 103, as far as the east is from the west, that's where our transgressions have been removed to. Isaiah 43, Isaiah 43, I am He who blots out your transgressions for My own sake. I will not remember your sins. Or Hebrews chapter 8, verse 12, I will remember your sins no more. Scripture cannot be clearer to say, for the believer in Jesus Christ, there will be no judgment for your sin. Why? Because your sin has been judged. It was judged on the cross and punished on the cross. And so therefore, there is nothing remaining for you to be judged for. So believers will be judged for what we have done, and determining where we'll go will be judged by the standard of what Christ did, and determining the levels of our rewards will be, determined, will be judged by the actions of our life, and we'll be awarded degrees of rewards. Now, we don't have time today to talk about what those rewards may be. We'll get to that when we get to heaven. Not literally, but we'll get to that when we get to heaven in the series. But we'll, we'll uh, just mention the fact that Scripture is very clear that there is an assessing of a degrees of these degrees of rewards. Look at 1 Corinthians chapter 3. Paul says this, Now, if anyone builds on the foundation with gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, straw, each one's work would become manifest. For the day will disclose it. That's a clear reference to the day of judgment. The day will disclose it because it will be revealed by fire. And the fire will test what sort of work each one has done. If the work that anyone has built on the foundation survives, he will receive a reward. If anyone's work is burned up, he will suffer loss, though he himself will be saved. So Paul is saying here that if you're united together with Christ, your eternal location is secure. However, what you've done in this life will be subject to the judgment of fire. And if it burns up, you won't receive a reward for that. If it doesn't burn up, if it survives, if the foundation of that work survives, then you'll receive a reward for it. 
So the focus here is on the nature of what we have done for Christ, the service that we have given to Christ in this life. Look at 1 Corinthians 4. Therefore, do not pronounce judgment before the time, before the Lord comes, who will bring to light the things now hidden in darkness and will disclose the purposes of the heart. <clears throat> then each one will receive his commendation from God. So we put that together and we say, what's being judged here is the service that we have rendered unto God. Now, how is that service judged? It's clear to see from both of those passages that what's, what is being judged is not what we've done, but how we've done it. The foundation that's either burned up or survives is the foundation of our heart, of our motives. As Paul says in 1 Corinthians 4, the purposes of the heart. In other words, those who have done very visible, very great things for Christ in this life will not necessarily receive any greater rewards than those who have served Christ in anonymity, doing very subtle things, hidden things, things behind the scenes. Billy Graham won't necessarily receive any more rewards than you. Because the things that he has done in service to God in this life will be judged not by what he did, but by how he did it. What was the motive of his heart? What was the purity of his heart? Was he really doing that with a pure heart, or was he doing it with other motives? That's the fire that's going to consume those things that we've done for God, whether they were big or small, they will be subject to the fire of judgment to determine what was the purpose of your heart in doing that. And so that should be great encouragement for those, for those of us who serve Christ with no recognition. We don't do things for Christ that are big and visible, that other people see. We are in no way disadvantaged than, than they are when it comes to the day of judgment because what's being judged is not what you did, but how you did it. So, let's ask the question, this day of judgment thing, it really does seem to put a damper on heaven, doesn't it? I mean, because I don't know about you, but I have no expectation that on the day of judgment, I'm going to shine like a new penny. I have no expectation that Jesus is going to be impressed with what I did for you. I don't know if you do. If you feel that way, then I would encourage you to repent of your pride. But I have no expectation that I'm going to stand before Him and Jesus is just going, to, just going to flow all over me about all the good things I've done for Him and the purity of my heart as I did them. Because I know my own heart. And so, the rewards that I would expect to receive, I don't anticipate them being all that great. Now, doesn't that just sort of automatically get heaven started off on the wrong foot? I mean, because we go from that straight to the eternal state. Doesn't that just sort of make things like, oh, that, this just really took the air out of that, you know? Let me suggest to you that your, if you, if you agree with that, with that sentiment, let me suggest to you that the reason that you would feel that way is because you are now still living with a sin nature. And the important thing to understand is that on the day of judgment, your sin nature will be gone. It will be no more. Now, your sin nature is doing at least two things for you. First of all, your sin nature right now is telling you to be jealous. And so, when you think of entering into eternity, having just left the judgment throne of Jesus, and you're like, well, <clears throat> that didn't go so well. I only got a half a crown. And then you enter into heaven and you see all these other people with all these... Your sin nature right now is telling you that that makes you unhappy to see others who have excelled beyond you. And so you're automatically equating that with reduced happiness. And that is not the case, folks. When your sin nature is gone, so will jealousy be gone. So will competition be gone. On that day, you will do nothing but glorify God for the rewards of others. You will glorify Him for His fairness for His justice, and you will see your own rewards and you will say that is absolutely right. He is the judge who judges rightly. So your jealousy will be gone, your competition will be gone. Secondly, when your sin nature is gone, so will be the tendency that we all have to attach happiness to status. You know you have that tendency now. We think of happiness in terms of status. 
And when your sin nature is removed, your happiness will not be based on status whatsoever. It will be based on what Scripture tells us it should be based on, which is delighting in God. And so you will experience ultimate happiness because you will perfectly delight in the presence of God. And your rewards that you do receive or don't receive and those around you, whether they're more or whether they're less, will not detract from that happiness one ounce. Because there will be no sin nature that makes you jealous. There will be no sin nature that tells you that your happiness is now dependent on what your status is. It will only be based on the delighting in God. So, the day of judgment for the believer in Jesus Christ is not a a thing that will detract from our happiness at all. It will only add to it. So I want to pause right here. I've got a little bit more application a little bit later. But I want to pause right here and I I want to apply that. If it is true that the day of judgment means that your sin nature is gone, then what that should mean for us right now in this life right now is that we wholeheartedly apply the teaching of Hebrews 10, verse 24 and 25. This this passage tells us that we are to consider how to stir one another up for love and good, good works, encouraging one another all the more as you see the day drawing near. Again, a clear reference to the day of judgment. He says, when you, you see that the day is drawing near, therefore, you should stir one another up for, uh, for works of love and works of encouragement. In other words, because you know that on the day of judgment, you will be able to perfectly delight in the reward of others, you should invest yourself now in their rewards, stirring them up so that their reward will be greater, knowing that it will not detract from your happiness at all. So that's an application that we see here. We should apply Hebrews 10, 24 and 25, knowing that the removal of our jealousy, the removal of our sin nature will change our perspective in heaven. Now let me ask one more question, and uh, we'll answer that question, and then I want to apply some of this that we've talked about. The last question I want to ask is, why do we have to go through this process? Why do we have to have a judgment at all? Because at the point of death, the, the eternal fate of every person is sealed. Nothing happens after death that can change the eternal destiny of anyone. And at the point of death, don't you think God knows where you stand? God's not going to be surprised on the day of judgment. The day of judgment is not going to be, Jesus isn't going to open the books and and say, oh, let me see what you did. He knows. So why do we have to have this big to-do over the judgment? Why don't we just enter into physical death and then automatically enter into our eternal state? And I think the reason for the day of judgment is, to be, is, is because the day of judgment will be the single greatest display of the glory of God. We talked earlier about the scope of the judgment and how it's literally unimaginable the mass of humanity that will be there. And the angels and the fallen angels and Satan all will be there. And on that day, God's character is put on grand display. His righteousness, His holiness will be displayed over and over and over billions and billions of times. As each unbeliever comes before Him, His holiness will be proclaimed. His righteousness will be proclaimed over and over and over and over and over. And as each believer comes before Him, His grace and His mercy will be proclaimed over and over and over and over billions and billions of times. Can you fathom the display of the glory of God on that day? Nothing will compare to the display of His glory on that day. This will be the the best kickoff for heaven. This is the day in which Paul is talking about in in Philippians chapter 2 when he says every knee will bow and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. This is the day that that will happen. And billions of people will witness that. This will be the perfect initiation for heaven because it will be the ultimate display of God's grace and God's mercy and God's righteousness and God's holiness. The day of judgment, folks, is not about us. The day of judgment is about Jesus. We will come before Him, but we're not the ones on display. He is the one on display. He will judge according to the perfect standards of His law, 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 17, the Father judges impartially 
each one's deeds. And so over and over again, we will see the impartiality of God as He judges over and over. <clears throat> On that day, all complaining against God will cease. Romans 19 says, Every mouth will be stopped and the whole world may be held accountable to God. On that day, the complaining against God's unfairness is over. You know people that complain against God now? They complain that He's, if He exists, He's not fair, or He hasn't treated me fairly in this way or in that way. That is done on the day of judgment. There will be zero complaining after that because every human who has ever lived will see His fairness and His impartiality. No one will go to hell and complain that God sent them there. Everyone in hell will recognize that they deserve to be there. Remember the story of the rich man and Lazarus. The rich man and Lazarus had no, in, no inclination that he didn't deserve to be there. He knew he did. And that will be the, the status of all souls on that day because all complaining against God will cease and it will be turned into praise. Look at Revelation 19. After this, I heard what seemed to be the loud, the loud voice of a great multitude in heaven crying out, Hallelujah, salvation and the glory belong, and power belong to our God for His judgments are true and just. So the day of judgment will be an exercise in worship. It will be an exercise in praise to God. So, that brings us now to just a short section of application. I'm going to make just a few applicational points about the day of judgment. We know that the day of judgment is coming. We know this is a reality. But what does this mean for our life right now? How should this change our life right now? So four application points that we'll just go through quickly here. Number one, the final judgment satisfies our inward sense of need for justice in the world. Doubt that our world is terribly unjust? Unfair? All of us have been subject to injustice and unfairness. This world is just a place in which Nice guys finish last, and, um, and justice is never served, at least not as it should be, and unfairness exists all around us. And sometimes we can get so wrapped up in that. I often hear Christians that are just so upset about being, treat, being treated unfairly. Well, the final judgment should cause us to live in perfect peace with unfairness knowing that it will all be set right. Colossians chapter 3 says the wrongdoer will be paid back for the wrong he has done, and there is no partiality. We should live knowing that the final judgment is a reality and knowing what we know about it. We should live in perfect peace with injustice all around us. Not happy that it exists, but peaceful knowing that it will be set right and it will be perfectly set right. This is exactly how Jesus lived with such peace. This was treated unjustly, far more than any of us ever have been, and yet He had perfect peace. How did Jesus have peace? 1 Peter 2, verse 23, When He was reviled, He did not revile in return. When He suffered, He did not threaten, but continued entrusting Himself to Him who judges justly. Jesus could accept the beating and the mocking and being nailed to a piece of wood because He perfectly trusted His Father who said, I've got this. I've got this. You don't need to worry. This will be set right. I've got it. And we get so wrapped up and so twisted out of, out of place because we're treated unfairly. And the, to, to, the, to the degree that you don't have peace with being treated unfairly in this life, is the same degree that you don't believe in the final resurrection or the final judgment. Because the final judgment will set all these things right. Now, the second application is this the final judgment enables us to forgive others completely and honestly. You have trouble ever have trouble forgiving? Let me suggest to us the reason that we sometimes have trouble forgiving is because if we think that we do forgive, then the person gets away with it. Is that not true? Somebody does something against you and you have a hard time forgiving them because you know if you forgive them, well, they just got away with what they did. Let me suggest that our difficulty in forgiving others is rooted in the fact that we're not living the reality of the Day of Judgment. 
Because the day of judgment should assure us that we can extend perfect, complete forgiveness knowing that our Father's got this. It'll be set right. And so we need not set it right ourselves. Because that's what we do. When people hurt us and we don't want to forgive them, what we're saying is, well, at least I can withhold forgiveness from you and kind of set this right. The day of judgment tells us we can forgive perfectly and freely knowing that our Father's got this. He will judge perfectly and impartially. So the passage there, Revelation 12, I'm sorry, Romans 12, Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God, for it is written, Vengeance is mine, I will repay. Thirdly, the right provides a motive for righteous living. We will not earn our salvation. We can't do that. We cannot earn the favor of God. We cannot earn the approval of God. We cannot earn life with God. And so what motivation do we have to live righteously before Him? We have two. The biggest motivation we have to live righteously before Him is gratitude. Gratitude of His choice of us, of His redeeming of us, of His sacrifice for us. But also, another motivation for living righteously is the knowledge that the day is coming in which our works will be judged. Matthew 6, Jesus tells us to lay up treasures for ourselves in heaven. Now why would Jesus say that? Why would Jesus say that? Clearly, He's talking about living with a view to the final judgment in hopes of rewards on that day. You know that, that God doesn't want any believer to be surprised at the day of judgment? He doesn't want any of us to be surprised by the fact that, oh, my life is going to be judged? He wants you to know that so that you live in light of that. And then lastly this morning, number four, the final judgment should be great motivation for evangelism. Every decision that you make in this life has eternal consequences. Every one of them. And there are people living all around us. There are people living among us. Maybe you yourself is living as though your decisions now do not have eternal consequences. But every decision of our life has eternal consequences. We should live this life with a view towards the day of judgment that causes us to do everything we possibly can to turn those from the path of judgment to the path of righteousness. Like Ezekiel 33. Remember Ezekiel in 33, the watchman on the wall, he sees the danger coming and he does everything that he can to warn the others of that coming danger. The day of judgment should be great motivation for us to tell others of the judgment that is coming.